ஜுடிஷரி I think as HR would say it is important to manage our expectations from each other so I'm just going to let you know what to expect from this podcast or uh, what I had in mind to provide as content to per, uh, uh, because it's educational content I thought it should answer a few questions in terms of thematics of the podcast the primary goal of this podcast indeed is to create legal education that's accessible to everyone which means the episodes are designed with the idea in mind that people who are outside the legal profession are also listening hence it's a lot more accessible which means it will be slower for people who study law people who are practicing law might have slight impatience with the content which is fine i mean they probably know this stuff and like have it in the back of their head already but essentially the point remaining that at any cost my goal is to communicate this as accessible to most people as possible which is why the language is english which is a peculiar choice of accessibility is your goal in a country like india because most people would believe that english is not a first language but i thought by choosing hindi i would be directly alienating alienating any non hindi speaking parts of the country which is a considerable number of people not to mention i'm proficient and efficient at communicating information only in english which is why this podcast is also in english and if you feel like this podcast is not accessible or failing its goal of like providing legal uh, education that's accessible then please 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 let me know at deep fried neurons which is my instagram how i can make it more accessible things that i can include to teach in like course of uh, the podcast's thematic exploration if you will i'm open to suggestions and with that in mind i want to bring you today's episode which is a special on the basic structure of constitution of course what it is and how it is is something that i've explored through the episode by itself so i hope you have fun on the basic structure and one of the reasons why i chose this was something i'll again discuss in the recording is is because it was the biggest le- legislation in india and it's like the one case everybody knows was super famous or is super famous and we will touch on cases that have such significant fame because well it is good for the seo <laughs> and with that i would say today's class is now in session i just need to warn all of you that you will hear me say the word lafda a lot and lafda is the synonym for spat in hindi or altercation or conflict and the reason i'll say it is because it's really fun to say and it's also an inca- encapsulating word that like captures why anybody would go to an indian court because of well conflict or altercation at least that is the nature of civil suits in india otherwise you can also be a victim and well it still can be referred to as lafta is just not as sensitive to say it like that but since that's the spirit of the content or content creation on this podcast i will be covering the biggest lafda that has ever happened in 
the Indian courtrooms, at least uh, one that reached the Supreme Court. So far, a judgment that resulted in 703 pages and was need and needed like 13 justices to be involved in penning down is Keshav Nanda Bharti versus Union of India. It's a judgment that I've talked about on my other podcast quite a lot, but I understand there might be quite a few new people who are listening to me the first time. And there is a good chance that all of you, without mistake, might be familiar with the Keshav Nanda Bharti case because of like its importance within uh, the Indian jurisprudence and just the historical significance that this this judgment has. The reason that this judgment has such historical significance is because of a very fundamental uh, issue that it solved. And that is the position of the Indian courts on the ship of Theseus problem. This is not a lecture in metaphysics, so I'm not going to tell you the entire myth of Theseus, uh, the hero of Athens and king of Athens as well at some point, uh, who the metaphor comes from. But those of you who have seen... Is it Kiran Rao's movie? I think it is Kiran Rao's movie called Ship of Theseus. You might be familiar with the problem. The crux of the issue is that uh, Theseus has a ship. And this ship on a long enough timeline goes through wear and tear because it's floating around the world in, in the ocean. And eventually, slowly but surely, each of the part in that ship has been changed. And so has been each member of the crew. Is it still the same ship? That's the question. That's the philosophical conundrum. And while it is true that there is no philosophy factory in your town that offers jobs to philosophers, judges take up the opportunity at every lafada that they get to decide on these issues. I mean, in fact, they're paid for it. That's kind of their job. But some of these matters are a lot more consequential to how things will always happen within the Indian Indian jurisprudence. And Keshav Nanda Bharti versus Union of India turned a new leaf in the sense of who has supreme power. When it comes to Lafda, this was not just a Lafda. I will explain in five minutes about the facts of the case and how we got here in discussion. But the Supreme Court also had to answer a very fundamental question. That does the parliament have the upper hand and are they the ultimate sovereign? Or is Supreme Court still in their right to apply their judicial review and their, um, you know, tests of procedure to every law that they make? And while I know I'm not making very much sense, like this is exactly what it is. Like it is an excuse to talk about who has more power. So the excuse that is brought forward to them is Keshav Nanda Bharti the chief of Ednir Mutt in the state of Kerala in the uh, district of Kasargod. If there are any Malayali friends within the audience listening to this episode right now, please feel free to message me at Deep Fried Neurons. Uh, the correct pronunciation of the village, uh, so of the district, because I am certain I have not done a good job of pronouncing it. But anyway, so there is this Land Reforms Act in 1969 which kind of says that Keshananda Bharti's land will be taken away by the government and reallocated for stately purposes. 
and Keshav Nanda Bharti doesn't like that very much. He believes that his fundamental right to property, an actual thing that was a part of the constitution as per Article 31, was being violated along with Article 25, which is the right to practice and propagate religion and Article 26, which is right to manage religious affairs and several provisions within Article 19, specifically Article 19.1f, freedom to acquire property. So it's the standard reason why anybody goes to court, Lafda and Lafda about land. But before we get ahead of ourselves and explore what actually happened in the courtroom while Keshav Nanda Bharti versus Union of India was being discussed, it is much more important that we understand that this is it. This is why the basic structure doctrine ever got evolved. The reason why it was ever discussed property. I mean, like not immovable property and our conception of what was right to property. So if you want to understand how this discussion about a priest's land being acquired by the government in the state of Kerala became a debate that needed 13 judges to resolve the question of whether the Supreme Court has the power to do judicial review across the board and challenge the amendments made by the Legislative Assembly to the Constitution was valid or not. We have to understand the conversation in courtroom in general about something we call basic structure doctrine. The basic structure doctrine is not complicated to understand. Uh, we just were discussing ship of Theseus and well, luckily the metaphor is not directly comparable to where we are in terms of jurisprudential position in the sense that wear and tear is not an actual damage that happens, but how to keep this ship running? Like, can we change everything? If you're changing everything, does that mean design changes are on board? All these questions need to be answered. And the Supreme Court came up with an idea that there is a basic structure to the ship, the metaphor of the Indian constitution, which is non-negotiable. This is here to stay. And the Supreme Court will decide which one is it is the essence of the document. This is what was held in Keshav Nanda Bharti. And what does that mean? Is it just words floating in the air? We will discuss as we understand the basic structure doctrine across the timeline of right to property and property reforms within India. In other words, it's rewind time. And as any episode about Indian history has to start, it starts with the British. The reason I say that is because before the British arrived, we were a group of lot of monarchies. There wasn't a lot of democracy or republics that I know of within uh, the Indian subcontinent. And then we were suddenly under the crown of Great Britain who needed a cash cow for two world wars. And here was a, a vast piece of land that they had at their disposal, which was just ready to be exploited for all the cash that they could make. And also that it had a power structure that resembled the feudal structure. And the feudal structure is really good to collect taxes from because it's a centralized place instead of going from house to house to go exploit everyone. You can just like exploit the person who exploits them. So like, you know, cash rules everything about me, cream, get the money. You get the point. But the reason that is of consequence is because since 1857, the British government had done very little 
to acquire land to themselves but they had gained political power which meant they taxed the land itself but did not do much to spread equality within uh, the country and the one of the first problems that independent india had to deal with is the extreme inequality in the ownership of land within the country i wouldn't say we've come very far from then to now in terms of what is uh, income inequality i think some of the starkest differences in income inequality exist within india but you have to appreciate the fact that in 1950 or 1947 when we actually got the independence india was an agrarian society which meant which meant access to land means access to money and access to opportunities hence it was fundamental at the time to the lawmakers that they redistribute the land semi judiciously i mean by that i mean that they did want to distribute the land judiciously is just that it it ended up being semi judicious as is the case with almost all policy in this country but if they wanted to rush this process and show their commitment to this process the ideal way to do that was to take the parent document of your country's uh, entire sovereignty and put it in that like make your commitment known through that which is why article 31 was included which is right to property now thoda spoilers because i know this is like something that can cause confusion article 31 has since been read down to not include a uh, right to property and it is an amendment that we will go through called the 42nd amendment of the constitution so bear in mind as a warning that article 31 is no longer a fundamental right to property essentially that is what i was trying to tell you guys since our, since the 42nd amendment of the constitution and then we can move forward now this is a spinning wheel that we will explore throughout this episode the right to property it is an important part of this discussion and it is kind of inescapable which is why i had to mention it uh, up front the actual conflict that is legislatively recorded within uh, the entire issue of keshavananda bhatiya's union of india and basic structure is the powers given to the legislative under article 368 of the constitution i am not going to read through the entire provision i am going to read through the title of it basically it says power of parliament to amend the constitution and procedure therefore essentially the article 368 of the constitution of india is a way of recognizing that the constitution of india as it is like brought into effect in 1950 is a document that was created to provide the needs of the india that was in 1950 and with time the necessities of india will change and accordingly changes should be made which is what article 368 says and the legislative assembly the elected houses of the parliament should make those changes uh, as per the necessity at the time and these changes can be made to any law under the indian constitution but there is a catch uh, the catch is written in article 13 of the constitution of india and the title of article 13 is laws inconsistent with or in derogation of the fundamental rights basically i mean it's a long provision i'm not going to read all of it but 
it basically says that if the fundamental rights are being violated by any policy or law created by the legislative assembly of india it is invalid you cannot violate the fundamental rights of the indian people now that solves a lot of problems for us which means that any law that is not the constitution of india cannot violate the fundamental rights of the people of india and is against the spirit of uh, constitution and hence invalid which means that any act that you try to pass or any amendment that you try to pass in ipc or your cpc or you know prevention of corruption act if it violates the fundamental principles of the fundamental rights of any individual that should be grounds for striking down that law by the court basically it's not something that the constitution allows uh, in our rule book but the question that it left unanswered is what happens if i just amend what the fundamental rights are and the first time the supreme court of india had to answer this question was in 1951 in contrast of the first constitutional amendment act the first time we made a constitutional amendment is the time that we had a dispute regarding whether or not the legislature has the power to amend the constitution itself and whether whether the judicial review applies to it with the test of violation of fundamental rights just so we're not lost in the discussion we will be talking about shankari prasad versus union of india it is a 1951 case which dealt with the same thing that we've been talking about so far the zamindars that are aggrieved by their property being taken away by the land reform policy of india but the problem that they faced in their petitions was that their while their fundamental rights were being infringed upon in in that sense of the word like their right to property was being infringed upon there was also the fact that it was being infringed upon a legislative move of the first constitutional amendment act the first constitutional amendment act made some consequential changes in article 31 where they introduced article 31a and article 31b along with article 191g while you can go and read these provisions yourself because well you'll have to if you want to like make notes and sort of present this somewhere else but the crux of all three of these uh, provisions was that it gave the state governments of each of the states within the union of india the power to acquire land and the power to determine compensation for the said land and to acquire businesses either wholly or partially as per their discretion and all of this was done in an interest to fix a an upper ceiling on how much land any one person can hold naturally the zamindars who were at the time holding all this zameen zameen is land like that that's the feudal system name in in the india in indian context zamindari they were very aggrieved with the fact that they were losing so much land to all these peasants and they went to madhya pradesh high court uttar pradesh high court bihar high court with these petitions that stated that their fundamental right to property is being violated and of course eventually the all of them ended up in the supreme court because it was a matter of national importance in the volume that it showed up in and the supreme court did what it does efficiently to like dispose of of matters of national importance it took matters with similar 
facts and clubbed them all together within the case of Shankari Prasad versus Union of India, the case I was just talking about. And essentially, the Supreme Court now had the question of whether this intrusion of the fundamental rights that the Legislative Assembly has achieved by amending the Constitution itself is valid as per the first constitutional amendment. The Supreme Court also said that as per their understanding at that time, Article 13 basically meant that no ordinary law passed by the parliament can be done so, but the constitutional amendments made by the Legislative Assembly are completely constitutionally valid in the sense that any time that the Legislative Assembly believes it's reasonable, they can amend what are fundamental rights given to the citizens of India or anybody within the jurisdiction of India. Now, this is the first time that like this conversation comes up, like the conversation of basic structure and like what kind of power does legislative assembly have comes up within the court. And the second time it consequentially shows up is in the case of Sajjan Singh versus Union of India in 1965. The case this time is about a certain Sajjan Singh, a gentleman who was appointed a police officer in 1948 and was dismissed as a police officer in 1953. And his complaint uh, to the High Court when he filed his uh, petition under Article 226 at the time was that he was not provided the chance to explain himself properly in the sense that his dismissal comes without the promise of due process of law given to him. Now, under normal circumstances, it is easy to assume that this is very divorced from Land Reform Act and whatnot we were talking about so far. But it's really not because the due process of law, at least in the context of Sajjan Singh's case, was locked behind the 17th Amendment Act to the Constitution which also talked briefly about something that was introduced in the first and fourth amendment act called the ninth schedule. Essentially the ninth schedule of the constitution has laws which are immune to scrutiny from the Supreme Court or at least so was the position at the time. In Sajjan Singh's case again five judges sat down and were to decide again on the issue of basic structure doctrine they had to decide whether the parliament has the power to amend fundamental rights, even the due process of law, can it be denied by certain provisions that are within the ninth schedule? And another hint that I need to give you for the future reference, the case that we're going to discuss after this is that ninth schedule also c contains all the land reform acts that we've been talking about so far, or which will be the problem in exactly two years from the date of the decision of this case. So in Sajjan Singh, the Supreme Court says we don't find anything wrong with the logic that was made in Shankari Prasad's case. And if there is no express provision within the constitution that states that fundamental rights are not to be touched by anybody in the legislative assembly, they would have put that down within the structure of the document but it's not there and hence it does not need to be strictly followed or interpreted by the court. Now of the five judges, two judges which is Justice Hidayatullah and Justice Mudhorkar were extremely unsatisfied with this reading of the law and they 
we're certain that this case needs to be referred up to a, a stronger bench, a larger bench for decision. And that happened when the same issue came up two years later in the issue of Golaknath versus the state of Punjab. Now, in the Golaknath case, we return to the familiar territory of land disputes with the government and individuals. In the sense that Golaknath's family was a bunch of brothers who owned some 500 acres of farmland and were told that only 30 acres per person will be given to them. The rest will be given to, as in by rest, I mean not all of it, but like rest of it, some of it will be given to the tenants of the land and the rest will be declared as surplus. All of this was done under the Punjab Security and Land Tenures Act, which was again protected under the ninth schedule that we discussed previously. And hence it was beyond the scrutiny of law according to the legisla uh, legislative bodies at the time. But at this time, the Supreme Court had a, a fair idea that this is not a small issue and its settlement is essential for the functioning of this democracy. And hence, an 11-judge bench, the biggest bench so far, had been established to review this case. Again, it had similar elements as Sajjan Singh. It had the same issue of basic structure, which of the two articles of the constitution prevails over the other had to be decided. And 11 judges were called to make a resting and set precedent. Spoilers. It won't last, not for more than two, maybe three years, but it is nice that we had it. And this decision was curious because it was a landmark judgment that overruled the position in Sajjan Singh as well as Shankari Prasad. The Supreme Court was like, Aise kaise? and they took the position in law that judicial review is essential for any and all laws, including the constitutional amendments passed by the legislative assembly to be reviewed by the judiciary because they are the custodians of the constitution. Additionally, the Supreme Court also said that article 13 will apply to all constitutional amendments. Of course, the, the court was careful to like not ensue chaos and complete questioning of the document within the court and every constitutional amendment that has ever come because they would be drowning in paperwork. Also, not to mention that retrospective application of this principle was not necessarily uh, valid for them for, for the lack of limitation, as su such is written in the case anyway. And hence, it was pronounced at the time of the judgment that this, this new perspective as to judicial review to the constitutional amendments will be put from the date of the decision of Golaknath versus State of Punjab. But... Every action has a proportionate reaction. And in this context, it starts a very uncomfortable and difficult to look at conversation for the lack of a better word for it, of who has more power, the parliament or the Supreme Court? To know more, stay tuned at legally, t no, sorry, sorry. <laughs> I mean, to be honest, if I made two parts out of this and like sort of left you on a cliffhanger of what happens next, would be pretty funny but also like i want to wrap this up i do want to keep this educational not to mention we're not that far out of time but now we've come to the point of introducing the elements of keshav nanda bharti because 
at this point the parliament's pissed off they feel like they've been curtailed by the supreme court a bunch of bureaucrats and their absolute power as to do right by the indian people has been red taped around by the supreme court by the goloknath judgment so they do what is considered by me a pretty petty move and attempt to secure their right to make constitutional amendments without judicial review as a cementing position in law and they try to do that primarily by passing the 24th constitutional amendment act the amendment act that actually led to keshav nanda bharti and is looked at as the most serious power grab in illegal history of india essentially the solution that the indian parliament came up with in the 24th constitutional amendment act was that they amended article 368 to have clause 3 and they amended article 13 to have clause 4 so the interrelationalness of any amendment made by the parliament and any violation of fundamental rights had legally no correlation as per the document of the constitution hence any parameters to put constitutional amendments to the test of judicial review are completely null and void and goloknath versus state of punjab has no use in the legal sense this is the amendment important from the continuity part and the power struggle part but they also made a bunch of amendments that were necessary for them to achieve this legal insulation because they knew there would be a lot of pushback and the indian government will be dragged to court in opposition of these amendments hence they passed the 25th amendments in a uh, 25th constitutional amendment in a hurry which basically doubled down on the curtailment of the property rights along with that they passed the 26th constitutional amendment by which the privy purse was was shut down by the indian parliament the privy purse for those of you who don't know was a state mandated stipend of sorts that was given to the royal families of india which were harbored by the british as as like titular sovereigns and there was the 29th constitutional amendment act which was consequential within the keshav nanda bharti case of the land reforms and that's how the parliament and the supreme court ended up in a power struggle in the court where the court had to decide whether they have the purview and the authority to perform a judicial review to the parliament's policies and give them the power to amend fundamental rights or not and the only reason this discussion got recorded is because keshav nanda bharti wanted his land back from the kerala government that was seized under the kerala land reforms act 1969 also included in the ninth schedule and hence it ended at a convergence point where the 24th constitutional amendment act along with the 25th 26th and the 29th uh, constitutional amendment act along with the provisions that were or the guidelines that were given in the goloknath case were all to be discussed in the court of law in the keshav nanda bharti case by 13 judges the very proportions of the number of judges along with the length of this judgment and the impact that it it has had on the jurisprudence of constitutional law within india 
is irreversible and extremely palpable and i think that just goes without saying now as to what the parliament decided in the case the parliament upheld the 24th constitutional amendment act and it told the parliament yes there is no question in law that you can amend the fundamental rights within the constitution also however you cannot forego the process of judicial review and any amendment you make has to be in line with the basic structure of the constitution now as to what the basic structure is is not written by any jurist in the in the entire judgment like all of 703 pages i don't think anybody who has read them could tell you what the basic structure is of the constitution i think personally that it is safe to say that basic structure is a vibe <laughs> i am proud of that joke i am genuinely proud of that joke but coming back to serious business this 13 bench judgment essentially said that judicial review is non negotiable we're not stepping back on that and you can do whatever you want to the constitution as long as it is in line with the basic structure doctrine now there are books written on it you can you probably have a vision or an understanding of what the constitution is supposed to be most jurists do anybody who does this job has to in fact and an alignment with that basic structure doctrine has to be found every time this argument is made that is the impact of keshav nanda bharti which is important for all of us to record not to mention it cements a right to judicial review against any movement by the uh, legislative assembly and it also gives them the power to autonomously do their job which of course adds a lot more convolutions and complications to all of our lives but such is democracy and of course there is a general understanding of what the basic structure includes but it is a non exhaustive list and up to the discretion of the court when the dispute arises the vaguest idea that you can get off of that is the direction given in the case that anybody making an amendment to the constitution must keep in mind the intent of the framers of the constitution for a provision and the goal that they had in mind with the constitution that is the basic structure as far as the impact of the keshav nanda bharti versus union of india case goes in the indian jurisprudence the ultimate and the most famous example is worth discussing and it is by far one of the worst power grabs that i have ever seen to the extent that it is shocking to most people who remember it or lived through it other people who didn't live through it of course are in complete knowledge of how bad it was in 1975 the ruling prime minister of uh, india and the congress party was contesting elections from ray bareilly uh, a constituency from uttar pradesh in near the lucknow region i think it's a district by itself and her opponent mr raj narayan takes her to court over allegations of election malpractice and in a historic judgment the allahabad high court rules that indira gandhi had committed electoral fraud and hence her election was quashed 
by the Allahabad High Court on 12th June 1975 a day before Gandhi goes to the Supreme Court or files the petition in the Supreme Court for review she passes the 39th constitutional amendment act and as per this act she introduces article 329a and makes changes to article 71 effectively you can go read the provisions on yourself on your own but effectively what these provisions meant was that the power that the supreme court had over the review of elections of president vice president speaker of lok sabha or prime minister were revoked and the supreme court no longer had the authority to review any disputes relating to these appointments but thanks to the president of keshav nanda bharti and the basic structure doctrine clause 4 of article 329a was struck down by the supreme court of india at the time and then of course in 1977 when the emergency was over and morarji desai had taken over government the 39th uh, constitutional amendment had to be undone because of how much of a disaster it was and it was a desperate attempt of indira gandhi to to latch on to power and not let go however uh, prime minister indira gandhi did succeed in imposing national emergency and she kept power for 2 years where extremely censored media fed her very positive press to herself and uh, she ended up overestimating her popularity with the public and she would lost the election by a huge margin but that is a history lesson for another day so far what is relevant is that when the power grab was desperate Keshav Nanda Bharti actually came in handy to prevent constitutional validity of a patently bad law which was created to burn bridges and and safeguard power however before ms gandhi left office she was determined to undo the damage that keshav nanda bharti had done to her grip on power i mean of course she wasn't alone the entire ruling party was involved in this scam and was supported by some elements of the oppositions as well i would believe that it's a parliamentary uh, move altogether everybody agreed or at least a majority did to the extent but at this point it is not difficult to assume malice i will make that clarification that in the st- telling of this story i am making an assumption of malice in the passing of this con- of this amendment not to say that it matters is just an assumption that i am putting out there it's not necessary to the storytelling at all besides a little tonal color of authoritarianism i assume but the 42nd amendment was passed in 1976 and it basically said that any changes that the parliament makes to the part 3 and part 4 which is the fundamental rights along with the directive principles of the constitution of india will not be open to judicial review from henceforth as per article 368 clause 4 and clause 5 and at this point the parliament chose to give itself unlimited amending power to all extents as per clause 5 of the article 368 of course it is also important for me to mention after like such 
big assumptions of malice on on behalf of the prime minister and her ruling party that 42nd amendment is a huge amendment and it touches on a lot a lot of issues including abolition of right to property because the logistical troubles in it were seen by the parliament at the time but at the same time it is impossible to ignore that parts of 42nd amendment were used to curtail the power that the supreme court had vested in itself in the case of nanda bharti versus union of india case at least temporarily however those parts of the 42nd amendment of the constitution of india were nullified very quickly when the minerva mills case came to the light in the supreme court uh, the case was about this group of individuals who was involved in the business of textiles and they had a textile mill located near the bangalore city along with different places across uh, across the country and it had been acquired by the government as a part of nationalization and that nationalization was questioned along with the validity of several constitutional amendments and during this proceeding the supreme court very clearly stated that we don't accept this no judicial review position we will judicially review each and every part of any and all amendments that you make and we will limit your amending power as well and as long as there is harmony between part 3 and part 4 of the constitution of india that is like the fundamental rights match the directive principles so the directive principles set by the state and the center match the fundamental rights or accommodate for the uh, fundamental rights we will be fine with it hence the supreme court once again created room for intervention on their behalf stating the grounds on which they can intervene and finally jumping one year ahead in the future which is 1981 since keshavananda bharti there was a lot of lot of applications one of them being vamandra versus union of india the case that we will be talking about that asked for keshavananda bharti's principle being applied retrospectively again this is not a common practice in indian jurisprudence in general we don't usually apply law retrospectively every law that we create is is applied prospectively or in the future i don't know if that's the right word but you you get the point we don't go back in time and fix things on basis of the law that we've just developed that's the point that i was trying to make and vamandra sort of cemented that vamandra was again a land dispute uh, the upper ceiling on uh, agricultural holdings was challenged in the case and the case was the petition was dismissed on the basis of the basic structure doctrine and it's it's retros it's non retrospective application the other two cases that i want to leave you with are sort of just applications of the basic structure doctrine that sort of helped us uh, during our times in 1992 the indra sawney versus union of india case which was a challenge to the creamy layer declarations to the obc's reservations were defended by by the supreme court and as long as due procedure and rule of law was followed this was held to be constitutional and valid and rule of law was more or less added to the list that consists of basic structure within the basic structure doctrine of the constitution finally the 1994 case of sr bombay versus the state of karnataka was also consequential in expanding the entire process of rule of law and the part here is a little complicated it's a little like gamers would understand this uh, analogy quite well 
so up until 1994 the common practice in karnataka was to spam the national emergency button until you can get enough votes to paralyze the government and make an opposition government and this kept happening article 356 is how you impose president's rule until then the opposition parties that hold the center sort of acquire political defections and that's how it worked while no constitutional amendment was directly challenged during this case the basic structure doctrine was implied and the court expressed its disapproval of the abuse of process of law okay everyone that's all i have for you this week this podcast was conceptualized edited and recorded by me deep fried neurons and the research was assisted on this podcast by siddhant singh the music for the podcast is by triggerfish.wood on instagram and if you found the podcast to be informative or interesting or entertaining please 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 let us know by messaging me on either instagram or facebook at deep fried neurons better yet if you want to monetarily support the podcast please consider donating to my patreon or buy us a coffee whichever one works for you the plan with this podcast is to bring you either a deep coverage or at least a what looks like a deep coverage on the surface <laughs> i'm proud of that one of either a legal concept very interesting in the law and the reading of which is slightly trickier unless of course you read the fine print bring you a landmark case about a specific issue uh, and the standing of the supreme court on it and the evolution of that and its cross intersections with our lives with that i will now give you a legal and controversial warning to not commit any crimes this week and see you very soon